0: Um, I'm glad you all are here this morning. This week, the lesson was one of those really hard lessons for me to put together because it could be just simply a history lesson. And that's not what we're all here for. You don't entrust your hour to me for me to just stand up here and give you a history course. But today is truly, in some ways, a history of Western civilization at a key turning point. And, And we still look at it because we've got a key nexus here between just the history of Western civilization and the history of the church as they have combined together. And it adds in theology and it adds in doctrine. And it's one of those truly galvanizing key moments in history that have radically changed where we are and who we are. You know, if you go back in time and you alter events... If you alter whether or not you killed a bug over breakfast in 1972, it may not change the world much, if at all. But if you altered these events, we wouldn't even remotely exist or live or be who we are today. Civilization would be entirely different. So this morning what we're looking at is Constantine the Great, With a focus especially on the Council of Nicaea. Now, I want to put this into some context for you. But before I do that, a little personal story. We live in a house that has a gate in front of the driveway. Now, there are pros and there are cons to having a gate. One of the pros is, it is supposed to be safer. It's, uh, if somebody's got a choice between breaking into a house with a gate or a house without a gate, typically they'll go without a gate. If they want to climb the gate, they can, but how do they cart off the TV without opening the gate? <laughs> so, ideally, it's supposed to help with safety. It also is a huge help for us with animals. Because we got animals on the inside, we want to keep on the inside. And we live in an area where there are still some coyotes around on the outside. And we try to keep them from coming in and eating our ducks. So it's it's a, a, um, an important aspect of the where we live because of that. But there are some cons. One con is, it's really hard for us to get deliveries. Because they just leave little stickers saying, we wanted to deliver this, but you had a gate. And then we got to figure out how to get it. Now, another con that may not occur to you as a con, but it is to me, and I say this with love and respect to everybody, is we don't get any more Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on the door. (laughs) And I put that as a con because I personally love to have Jehovah's Witnesses knock on the door. You see, before living here, my house didn't have a gate. I lived in Copperfield, and the Jehovah's Witnesses would come knocking. There was this one young fellow who came knocking on my door. He said, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Would you like to have a free copy of the Watchtower for a donation? And I said, no, I don't need one, but I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And he said, well, what do you want to talk to me about Jesus about? We believe in Jesus. I said, yeah, who is he? Well, God made Jesus, and Jesus is is the best one that's been out there, best one of us. But he's not as important as Jehovah God the Father, and he's not as powerful, and and so uh, uh, he's he's lesser. And I said to him, I said, now where do you get that from? And he shared a couple of Bible verses with me. And I said, well, I've got a suggestion on how you may read those differently. And he says, well, I've tomato, tomato, but I go this way. And I said, well, time out. Don't you have problems with Philippians? He says, what's the problem with Philippians? I said, in Philippians 2, it says that God bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, every name, every name. I said, if you're taking it your way that Jesus and Jehovah are pitted against each other in terms of value, and you can compare one to the other, then technically, according to Philippians, Jesus trumps Jehovah. He's got the name above every name. He says, well, that doesn't count Jehovah's name. I said, well, look at the next verse. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim that Jesus is Lord. I said, now that works for me because He's Lord to the glory of God the Father and they're the same. But if you're putting them one against the other, it doesn't work for you. Because now Jehovah is less than Jesus. He said, I don't, I don't know how to answer. I'll get back to you. I need to go to the kingdom hall and I need to ask someone who's, who's a little bit more conversant in this than I am. I said, you do that and I'll see you next week. So a week later he comes back out. And he says, I got the answer. And he starts telling me the answer. I said, no, that answer doesn't work. Let me tell you why. And I started showing him why. He says, yeah, I see your point. He said, I got to go back to kingdom hall. So he said, uh, I said, I'll see you next week. He said, well, I may not be able to get out here next week. I said, well, let's change exchange phone numbers. So we did. So about a week goes by. I don't hear from him. I give him a call. How's it going? Did you talk to him? Or are you ready to talk about it? He said, well, they've told me not to really talk to you anymore. <laughs> I'm praying that that man today knows Jesus as... As God, Lord God. And I tell you that story because his heresy, and I use that word politely, but I use that word because it's the truth. His heresy is not something that just was invented in the last 150 years. His heresy goes back with deep roots. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But to do that, we've got to start with Constantine the Great. Now, here was my temptation. I could not just turn this into a history class as much as I love history because y'all would walk out on me. And Actually, not all of you. A few of you really like history. You'd stay in here. We'd nerd it together. But that's not the goal here, Randy. But we do need... Randy loves history, man. We do need to cover some history to get the general feel of some of what was going on. All right? Constantine the Great. There's a three-volume treatise on Byzantium by Lord John Norwich. Famous uh, TV personality, but a famous historian, wrote dozens of books on history out of England. Here's what Lord John Norwich said about Constantine the Great. No ruler in all history. Not Alexander the Great, not Alfred the Great, not Charlemagne, Charles the Great, not Catherine the Great, not Frederick the Great, not Gregory the Great, has ever more fully merited the title of great than Constantine. Norwich goes further and says Constantine is more important in the history of our civilization than anyone except Jesus, the Buddha, and Muhammad. Now, I would say Moses trumps Constantine. And I would say Paul trumps Constantine. But I can't think of anybody else who does. Constantine the Great. That's who we need to start with. And to understand why, let me just give you three things Constantine the Great did before we get into the the meat of the lesson. First, He's the one who adopted Christianity as the official religion of the state, of the Roman Empire. Second, he's the one who moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome, it's the Roman Empire, to Istanbul. Constantinople is what he named it. Constantine. An opal from polis, the Greek word for city, the city of Constantine. And, and, and third, he convened the Council of Nicaea, which we'll be talking about. There are more things he did. His mom, he sent his mom on the Holy Lands. How many of you have been to the Holy Lands? Okay, many of you. You know, when you go to the, how many of you went to the Holy Lands with Hal? Tour Guide how of some of you. All right, when you go to the Holy Lands, different sites will be graded. And they'll say, we know pretty much for certain this site is ABC. Then they'll say, this one, we're pretty sure. You know, we can't, it doesn't have a sign that we found that is 2,000 years old that says, or 3,000 years old that says Moses slept here. But we're pretty sure this is what it is. Then there's a third level where, you know, we don't really think this probably is right, but there's a chance this is where it is. And then there's a fourth level of, they have no clue. Absolutely no clue, but someone's making a buck off of your entrance ticket to buy this one. Okay? Now, those are the different levels. That category two, where they say, you know, we're pretty sure. We don't know for certain, but we're pretty sure. Many of those are based upon what Constantine's mother uncovered when she went to the Holy Lands to start figuring out all of the historical sites of Christianity. Just throw that in there. Okay, now, to get in this, we got to get a running start on Roman history because we need to understand Constantine in context. I've put up a map of the Roman Republic as of 44 B.C. 44 B.C. is an important year. 44 B.C. is when Julius Caesar becomes the head of the Roman Empire and is appointed as an emperor. Before Julius Caesar, Rome exists as a republic ruled by its Senate. Julius Caesar comes in, brings an army to Rome for the first time. The army wasn't supposed to come into the capital. And Julius Caesar takes over and becomes the supreme leader. That does not last long. On the Ides of March, beware the Ides of March, a couple of his cronies kill him. And it plunges the Roman Republic or empire, scholars differ on when they change that terminology, it plunges it into civil war as different armies and different factions try to take over. That civil war is finally ended around 27 BC and it officially becomes the Roman Empire because Augustus Caesar, whose real name was Octavius, but he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So he takes the name Caesar from Julius Caesar and then adds Augustus because Augustus is Latin for August. Supreme. So Octavius takes the name Augustus, has the adopted name Caesar, and becomes the emperor. He defeats all of his opponents, and he rules the, 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 the Roman Empire. Now, it's called an empire. He's designated that title, Ruler for Life. Now, we know about him biblically, because Luke 2.1 says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. And that's what causes Joseph and Mary to head to Bethlehem. So Caesar Augustus, Caesar itself, becomes a title only after Julius Caesar. Really solidified by Augustus Caesar. And even when it leaves the Caesar family, that title still becomes the title for the ruler. If you want to know the by the way, who took Latin? Anybody? Alright, remember in Latin, you pronounce the C hard, like a K. So instead of Caesar, you would pronounce it Kaiser. That's the German Kaiser. It keeps that name. He was the ruler of Germany back before World War I. So this is this is this is our lineage, okay? So now After Augustus Caesar dies, his son Tiberius becomes Caesar. And Caesar just becomes the title for the ruler. And then Caligula becomes Caesar. And then Claudius becomes Caesar. And then Nero becomes Caesar. Now Nero is Caesar at the time Peter and Paul are martyred. Nero is a bad, bad Caesar. He's the one who persecuted the Christians, blaming them for for burning Rome. The Romans decide Nero's a bad Caesar too. They're overjoyed when he dies. Death to Nero. And when Nero dies, nobody wants the son of Nero or anybody he's adopted to be a ruler. They're ready to get out of that rut. And the military have four different emperors. In one year that all try to claim the throne. Some lasting for weeks, some lasting for months. But it's not until the new general comes in. And the new general Vespasian who belongs to a different family. The family Flavius. He begins the line of Flavian rulers. So the first Flavian is Vespasian. He is in the late 60s, about 69, he takes over. He's the one, by the way, who built the Colosseum in Rome. Okay? Now, Vespasian, when he becomes the emperor, at the time he becomes emperor, he is trying to quell a rebellion of the Jews in Jerusalem you can see why the Jews thought it a fortuitous time to rebel. You've got four emperors, Rome's in civil war, Rome can't make up its mind, it doesn't have a good leader. Hey, here's our chance to set up our, uh, our kingdom of Judah. But while Vespasian's putting it down, he leaves to come back to Rome to take over as emperor, leaving his son Titus in charge of finishing off the Jewish rebellion, which Titus does. And the golden age comes in for Rome, where Rome does pretty well. Oh, they persecute Christians on and off. But the nation itself is doing pretty well. And during this time, Christianity is growing tremendously. Through about 192. But as of 192, the Severan emperors come in. And the Severan emperors have a whole lot of problems. Problems. I'll detail those problems in a minute. But they enter into what are called the barrack times, where over a period of 49 years, there are 25 rulers. Rome can't find stability. And everything is, is problematic. Let me put up a map of this. Here's the crisis that happened there in the late 200s. Mid to late 200s. You've got Rome basically divided up into three different areas. You've got that area that's modern Germany, they called it Gaul, up into England. You've got an area of Spain. You've got an area of of Turkey with Italy and Greece and North Africa. And then you've got the, the, the folks that are arguing over in more of what we would consider Israel, Lebanon, Syria, those areas today. And all of these are in rebellion against each other. On top of that, you've got marauding people coming in. The Roman Empire trying to continue to exist is heavily taxing because they've got to have an incredibly large military. So their military is really working overtime. They're having trouble keeping military peace. And into this fragmented, decaying, Horrible situation, inflation, massive inflation. Because the only way they can pay the extra troops is to, to print more money. They didn't print dollar money, they made metal money. But they started taking their silver and they would put copper in it. And they dilute the silver down so that they could print more with the silver they have. Now, on top of all of these problems, a plague hits the empire. And a million people are killed from the plague. So now you've just gutted a substantial part of the population. You've got less people. You need a greater military than you've ever needed before. You don't have the taxation for it. You don't have the money for it. And you've got schisms around the empire. Everything is falling apart. And all of the people know it. And everyone's scared to death. And in comes a brand new ruler. His name's Diocletian. And Diocletian says, I'm going to fix this. And he gets his army and he starts conquering. And he says, one of the first things I'm going to have to do is divide this up. This kingdom's way too broad for anyone to rule by themselves. So I'm going to rule on the eastern half, and I'm going to get my buddy Maximian to rule from the western half. And we get along well. So we're going to rule together. Now, we've got to do something. After all, the gods are clearly upset with us. The gods must be upset with us. There are these marauding tribes coming in. There's civil unrest. We've had a massive plague. We've had a million people die. That would be in today's terms, like uh, in our population about, uh, 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 of the world, about 115 million people dying from a plague. So, so Diocletian says, you know, clearly we've made the gods mad. Oh, I think I know why. It's been this growth of Christianity. These Christians, they're not really loyal to the empire. They're loyal to their God. They'd rather die than pledge allegiance to Caesar as God. They don't, they don't put up with our gods. They teach against them. They're evangelizing. They're growing. They may be as much as 10% of the population, maybe more. Bless you. So we got a problem here. So Diocletian has this great persecution that we referenced previously, where he says, tear down any churches that have been built, arrest all of the bishops, anybody that won't denounce Christianity, kill them, burn all of their scriptures. We're going to put an end to this so that the gods will again view us with favor. So Diocletian says, I will do this, I'll oversee this. He sets himself up to do it from the east. He has Maximian do it from the west. And then he says, another problem we've got is, when the Caesars pass away, there's always a fight over who's going to be the next Caesar. So I will appoint a couple of junior Caesars, heir of parents. So he appoints a couple of them. He appoints a fellow named Galerius and ultimately not Constantine, which I put in the picture, but Constantine's father, Constantius, is appointed. It just so happens then at around 305, for the first time in the history of the Roman Empire, Diocletian and Maximian quit being Caesar Augustus They quit being the august, the greatest Caesars by retiring. All other Caesars have kept it until they died. But these two guys decide to retire. Diocletian had built this great castle, not castle, um, a palace in modern split Croatia. And so he retires and becomes a vegetable gardener. And people say to him things like, oh, we need you to run the empire. And his reply is things like, you would never ask me that if you'd seen the cucumber I grew. I think it was a pumpkin or something, but some gourd. So they go into retirement. Galerius is thinking, okay, my moment to shine is about to happen here. In, in but, but the problem is, Constantius dies. And appoints his son, Constantine, to be in his his place. Constantine's ruling modern Germany, ancient Gaul, up into England. In fact, he takes the mantle on from York, England. Yeah, there's going to be a showdown. It's coming. You don't have those rulers like that for long, right? So Constantine decides he's going to take over the empire. And he scares a bunch of people away. But Maximian comes out of retirement with his son saying, No way. We never picked you to start with. And there's a big showdown, a fight, the Battle of Milvian Bridge, October 28, 312. There's the Milvian Bridge today. It crosses the Tiber River into Rome. And Maximian has got to keep Constantine and his army out of Rome because once Constantine gets into Rome, the the Senate's going to... I mean, you don't bring an army into Rome and have the Senate look at you and say, nah, we don't want you. You get your army into Rome, they're staring at the Senate. The Senate says, yeah, we're on your side, Okay? So Maximian's got to stop that. He takes his army. Maximian has twice the soldiers that Constantine has. They cross the Tiber River on the Milvian Bridge. And by the way, repairs have been done, but that's the Milvian Bridge. They cross and they set up And the night before the battle, October 27th, something happens. Constantine's story later in life is that he had a dream. But it's either a dream or earlier in life it's also recorded that he kind of looked up in the sun and had a vision. And here's what the vision was. It was a cross turned sideways a little bit, diagonally, which was another way they crucified in the Roman times, but to us, looks sideways, with a Greek row. Now those are two Greek letters once you turn the cross that way. The Greek letter chi, or chi, you can pronounce it either way, and the Greek letter row. Those are the first two letters in the name of Christ. And of course, the, the cross itself is associated with Christ. We don't Constantine gave was not a Christian. Though Constantine likely attended some Christian lectures when he was young. Now, Constantine has this dream, this vision, by this you will conquer. And Constantine decides that that is a sign that all of his men are supposed to paint the cross with the row on their shields. In fact, even today, if you see a cross like this, oftentimes they'll put a crossbar in the middle too, but that's called the cross of Constantine. So all of his soldiers paint on their shields this red cross And the next morning, when the battle comes, they take it in and totally rout Maximilian. In fact, Maximilian drowns in the Tiber. Accounts differ. Maybe he was swimming to get away. Maybe he was uh, thrown from his horse. You have different accounts. But he's dead. And now you've got Constantine. And Constantine is ruling without dispute all of the West in the Roman Empire. You've still got a junior Caesar on the other side. His name's Licinius. Now, you may be looking at that picture of him on that coin thinking, he looks goofy. If you're thinking that, I agree. But it's a coin, it's the only thing I could get of Licinius, and if he looked like that, heaven help him. I still think I still think go back to Maximian. I think Maximian kind of looks like Jackie Gleason if you remember Jackie Gleason. But anyway. All right. So, we've got Constantine and we've got Licinius. Constantine and Licinius have a meeting and they decide, "Okay, Licinius you rule the east, I'll rule the west." And things will be fine. But Constantine goes a step further. And Constantine embraces Christianity. Now Dalmatian, the fellow before him, had, had been the author of the great persecution. Now all of a sudden Constantine comes in and he opens up the Roman treasury. And he says, we're going to use the money in the Roman treasury to build churches. We're going to use the money in the Roman treasury and we're going to use the architects. The official Roman architects. And church architecture at that point starts looking a whole lot like the old ancient pagan temples. Because that's all they knew how to build. So he decides we're going to start doing this. Now, scholars at this point start debating. Did Constantine convert to Christianity? There are some really positive things. He starts promoting Christianity as the proper, true religion. He starts building the churches. He enacts blue laws, making it illegal to work on Sunday. Because Sunday should be a day of rest and a day of worship. Until Constantine, it's a day of work. Now, he doesn't change some of the names. So, for example, Sunday is named after Jupiter, the sun god. You've got different names of the week. And we've got Charles and Amy Cross, our French missionaries here today. Uh, Charles, come up. I need your help for a moment, please. Please. Y'all give Charles a big hand. He doesn't know he's doing this. Okay. Do we have a microphone for Charles? Grab that one. Let's see if it works. Okay. He's going to be my help here. Now, if you're a Jewish person, in Hebrew, even today, you don't call Monday, Monday. Heavens, you don't call Sunday, Sunday. Biblically, New Testament, wasn't called Sunday. It's called the first day, the second day, the third day. The only name of the day of the week with a name in Hebrew is Sabbath, the day of rest. Sabbath means rest. Now, we have these names. Sunday. What is Sunday in French? Dimanche. Monday. What is Monday in French? Lundi. Lundi tuesday in french mardi mardi. yes mardi y'all got any clues where these come from these are planets named after the gods so mardi did i say even remotely Uh, say it right sorry mardi mardi Oh no! I was. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Marti. Yeah. Although in Italian, it's it's a similar word. Those words come from the planet Mars, the god Mars. Wednesday is Mercredi, which is Mercury. Thursday, Jeudi, which is Jupiter. Jupiter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. All right. Now here's the deal. We're Anglo-Saxons, by and large, in our language. We keep a little romance in it, but not a lot. And so we call it Thursday instead. Because we named it after the god Thor. So, Friday in French? Vendredi. Named after Venus, I think? Yes. And Friday in Anglo-Saxon is Friday, named after the Norse goddess Freya. Okay? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You did good. Thank so, you. yeah, absolutely. So, and, and our months also are affected in all of this. August, after Augustus Caesar, Octavius, October, okay, Julius, July. So the 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 the, the, the work that Constantine does isn't a complete conversion to Christianity. He keeps some markings of paganism. But he certainly emphasizes and puts the church into a very, very prominent position and ultimately makes the church the official religion of the state. Now, meanwhile, Licinius, the guy with the goofy-looking coin, he's not doing this. He sort of plays around. He was there for the edict of Milan where they... They said it's okay to be a Christian. He was, you know, he was okay with that. But he really isn't a supporter of the church the way Constantine is. Now you've got a Roman Empire that's been totally divided and fragmented. And all of a sudden you've got an emperor who is recognizing Christianity as the official religion of the state. He restricts pagan worship. And once he does that, From the furthest stretches of the east to the furthest stretches of the the west, England to Africa, he's got a united following. All of the church bishops, all of the church believers, and he's able to reunite the Roman Empire because he has a consistent, steady base. Now, meanwhile, just 20 years earlier. Actually, even less than that. 10, 15 years earlier. Christians are being killed if they won't convert or deny their faith. And a lot of Christians denied their faith. And once Christianity becomes the religion of the state, they're all coming back in. Hey, hey, you know, when I denied the faith, that was really just to save my life. I'm a believer. And back they come into the church. Of course, this causes a lot of disharmony in the church. A lot of people are saying, wait, I lost relatives who, you know, my dad died because he wouldn't denounce the faith. You denounced the faith and now you want to come back in and just be all huggy bear? That's a problem. What's more is now that it's official with Constantine, faith becomes politics. And if you want to advance in the Roman government, you have to be a Christian. So it's very convenient now for people to become Christians. But Christianity becomes the constant thread that is critical for Constantine in holding his empire together. The problem is, there are a bunch of um, um, different people around the, the, the world at the time, and even within Christianity, there are some heresies that are still being dealt with. One of them comes from a fella. Um, oh, the biggest ally Constantine had was the church. Sorry, I forgot that slide. One of them was a fella named Arius. He came from Alexandria. If you've been here the last couple weeks, Alexandria is the place that had the real... Um, I don't want to say sketchy and I don't want to say goofy, but it's almost sketchy and it's almost goofy view of Scripture that at least left a lot of room for a lot of different unorthodox ideas to arise. And Arius is a priest from there. He's not a bishop. He's a priest. But Arius is teaching his congregants and anybody who will listen to him that God made Jesus. And that Jesus is less than God. Arius is the patron saint of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not that they have patron saints, but I mean, this is, this is the Jehovah's Witness heresy. And Arius did it. And you're saying, well now, that's just, how can he even remotely do that? Well, if you don't handle scripture carefully and you take it out of context, look at passages like John 14:28. These are passages that Arius used. John 14:28. Jesus is talking here. And Jesus says, You heard me say I'm going away. And I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And so, based on this, Arius would say God the Father is clearly greater than Jesus. This is one of the passages the Jehovah's Witnesses will use frequently today. They'll also use one from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, actually, several from Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says the following. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So Arius said clearly we see here that God is greater than Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses would say the same. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight chapter that deals with the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, this is to God, see, Uh, God's put all things in subjection under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So from these passages comes a heresy that Jesus was made by God. Now, these passages need to be understood. They need to be understood, as as Pastor David said uh, today about another passage, in context. And should anyone have any lingering doubts, I put an appendix in your lesson walking through these and other passages, explaining them in context. Because the truth of the matter is, is God did not make Jesus in the beginning. Was the Word. The Word was already in the beginning. The Word was God. John said it clearly. Paul says the same thing. Philippians 2, that passage that I had with the Jehovah's Witness, starts out with Paul saying, have the same attitude that was in Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. See, this is key to understanding some of those passages. Look back here. Let's go back to the Elmo. Thank you. Have this mind in yourselves, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That doesn't mean like, I've got to get that. That word, a thing to be grasped, means a thing that he has to hold on to, that he already had. You read it in the Greek, it's clear. It's saying Jesus did not have to continue to hold on to that, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, or being born, a form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men. And then being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. There was a descendancy in that sense of Jesus descending but Jesus was no less God. He was God who set aside that form and took the form of a human. And and, and, and to, to do anything less is to denigrate who he is. So this heresy starts taking place and it starts gathering uh, ground. So what, uh, whoops, let me go back. So what Constantine does, make that... Well, that just doesn't work well. I'm sorry, I messed that slide up. Constantine calls 320 bishops from around, not just the Roman Empire, he gets some from outside the Roman Empire because the church extends beyond the Roman Empire. It's gone into the reaches of the world. And he calls them into Nicaea for a council in 325. Nicaea is a town outside of Istanbul, Constantinople, Turkey. These are the ruins that I've got in this picture. And, and and Constantine himself comes in and presides as if he's the bishop over the bishops. And he calls the big conference and he says, okay, figure this out. So for months, there's a debate as the, the, the church bishops try to discuss this and figure out, What's official church answer and policy? What is the biblical answer to this problem? How do we understand these passages in light of the whole context of the New Testament and the Old Testament? How do we understand it? How can we put it in human terms? Now, Arius is not invited as a bishop because he wasn't a bishop. But... The council brings him in multiple times to get his opinion and to talk to him about these things. And he's got a couple of dozen bishops that are very clearly Arians. So the church debates it back and forth and at the end adopts what we today call the Nicene Creed. And I want to put it on the uh, Elmo, if we can go to the Elmo. Here is the Nicene Creed as adopted by the church. Uh uh-uh. uh uh. By the way, the Da Vinci Code just messes up all of this history. That's just fiction. I've put some references in here to the Da Vinci Code to clarify some things. I mean, even pagan scholars know that the Da Vinci Code is fiction and messes this up, okay? So don't get your history of this from the Da Vinci Code, get it from real history. Here is the Nicene Creed. We believe. In one God, the Father Almighty. There's only one God. He's the maker of all things. Everything you see, everything you don't see. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten of the Father. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That is, of the substance of the Father. He is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. He was begotten, not made. He's of the same substance with the Father. Now, if you are really interested, you can look at the footnotes where we talk about the difference between homeousion and and, uh, the iota that makes a difference in how you take this i don't have time to get into that with you you will enjoy reading this lesson for more of that but let's finish the creed together through whom through jesus all things were made both in heaven and on earth who for us men and our salvation descended was incarnate and was made man He suffered, he rose again on the third day, he ascended into heaven and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit and those who say there was a time when he was not. And he was not before he was begotten. And he was made out of nothing. All of these are Arian statements. Or who maintain that he is of another substance or that the Son of God is created, or mutable, or subject to change. The Catholic Church anathematizes. Anathematizes means excommunicates and curses. Now, Catholic Church, in this sense, there is only one church. Catholic means one. This isn't a reference to the Roman Catholic Church apart from the Eastern Catholic Church, apart from the... Those distinctions don't get made yet. So the entire church, the entire church anathematizes because that's who Jesus is. And from that comes the Nicene Creed But I really beg you, if you weren't in the classes, go back and find the lessons on the internet to realize every statement in that creed is simply apostolic, biblical truth. All they did is reaffirm the teachings of the apostles. That's biblical truth. It's not something the church came up with at Nicaea. It's something the church worked hard to understand through scripture. And we've got it still today. So here's your fruit for home. Jesus asked Peter and others, who do people say the Son of Man is? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. The foundation of all that we are Is Jesus. Not simply a good man. Not something less than God. But God himself. And in John. Jesus is recorded in his last prayer. And Jesus makes a statement. That this is eternal life. That you might know him. And the one he has sent. Knowing Jesus for who he is. Is key to who we are as a people. It's the reason this isn't just a Kiwanis club or a rotary function that we're at on a Sunday morning. We know Jesus Christ. It's the reason when death is in front of us, we have hope and confidence to walk through that door. Because there is Jesus Christ, God himself, who has gone through the door and prepared it for us. And I want to know Christ. Paul says to the Ephesians, you didn't come to learn Christ that way. Surely you heard of him, you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. What Paul's talking about, there are people who aren't living a Christian life. Listen, if Jesus was a good man, and this is a neat idea, and it's a convenient way to function as a human in the 21st century, that's one thing. But if Jesus Christ is God himself... And if God himself truly emptied himself and descended and took on the form of a human and out of love and compassion truly in human form died for us, truly accounting for all of our sins, every one, and was resurrected and has assured us of eternity in his presence with God, then surely, surely, Our lives should reflect that. And our lives should be different. And I look back at Constantine and I think, man, the church and and scholars wonder, was he really converted or was it something of convenience? Was it a political necessity? He did some pretty atrocious stuff I didn't throw in here, like killing his son. Was it genuine? I do know Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. I know that our lives are supposed to reflect Jesus. Christian should mean not just belonging to Christ, but showing Christ. And I really want my life to do that. Now, I'm going to take just... I've got to do this. I've got to ask you to pray about something with me. Class is sort of over. But here's what I want you to pray about. I was talking... uh, Brent and I were talking to Pastor David this week. Um, In August the church is going to start a new um, um, program for life groups of sorts, Going Deep. And um, uh, not that we've been shallow before. (laughs) But it's just a, a, a mental emphasis. So we're going to take a hiatus from church history starting in August. But it's going to require me to get you guys some supplies beforehand. This is unless God changes our heart on this, but talking to David. Here's what we're going to do starting in August. Sometime next month, we're going to start making available bookmarks for everybody. On the back, it'll talk about our class and church so you can invite people. On the front, it will have the Greek alphabet. And our goal is over the summer to try and at least get some familiarity with letters of the Greek alphabet. And then starting in August... I'm going to write 14 lessons to take us through the end of the year that is going to be, um, I'm calling it right now, LGG, or maybe it's LG squared. Life Group Greek. And what we're going to do is each Sunday, I'm going to teach you a principle of New Testament Greek and use it to open up some passages of Scripture that will shine more brightly and be more clearly understood than they ever would have otherwise. When you understand what this Greek tense means and its nuances, or when you understand what Greek word order is, or when you just start dissecting some Greek vocabulary, and you won't need to know Greek, it will help you to know the Greek alphabet. But you can come in here as a sixth grade kid with no Greek knowledge, and you will still be uh, appreciative, I hope, and, and and grow as we look at this. So we're going to start a... I don't know that this has been done before, but we're going to do it. We're going to have handouts. I think it's going to be really good. Um, so I want you to be praying about it because if I'm just really missing God's direction on this, we need to figure it out before I start writing all these. This is, I don't want to waste my time. Um, so with that, uh, I hope you're continuing to work through First John. Would you let me pray over you and we'll be dismissed. Lord, I do ask for guidance in this class, uh, uh, in the class as a whole. Lord, would you give us guidance in where we need to be going to bring glory to you? But Father, in, as I reflect back on this lesson for the class, it is my prayer that nobody in here will worship you out of convenience. That faith will not be a business model. That faith will not be a social model. But that we truly will worship and give our lives to the risen Lord Jesus. God of gods. King of kings. And that you, Lord, as we do so, will transform our lives into the images of his likeness so that we can shine for Jesus every minute, every day, everywhere we are until we come home with you eternally through Jesus. Amen.